everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, off your order. Hey, everybody. It's Friday, November 4th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news, or at least I try to. In fact, today, Jill, I was trying to read as much as I could as I was at the mechanic trying to figure out what was wrong with the front left wheel of my car. So uh, (laughs) there's a lot. There's a lot in today's podcast. Ah, that's where you were, Mosh. For some reason, I thought that you were um, traveling. For some reason, because you travel every single day. So I I assumed you were flying somewhere. Um, But here is what we are working on today. It is the final sprint to the midterms and Republicans are feeling pretty, pretty good, as Larry David would say. Spring forward, fall back, get ready for one hour more of sleep this weekend. And then darkness at uh, 4, 4.30 p.m. for weeks. The pros and cons of never changing the clocks back. A number of prominent companies are dropping their Twitter ads. And our Friday segment, what we are watching, reading, and eating this weekend. Can't wait, Jill. Uh, A free preview for those who can't wait till the end of the podcast. I've been jamming on a lot of snacks here. My wife has been uh, (laughs) away for like a week and a half, and I'm I'm regressing. (laughs) I can't wait to see what you've been eating. Okay, let's get going. Four days till the midterms. A new Wall Street Journal poll finds just 19% of Americans, only one in five, say that the economy's on the right track. The poll was conducted jointly by pollsters who work for both Trump and Biden. It is the latest sign that the electorate is disillusioned and ready to use the midterms next Tuesday to punish the party in power. So this effectively, the polls effectively show that one, if you don't follow politics obsessively, you're probably voting on pocketbook issues. Two, if you're voting on pocketbook issues, you're probably worried about inflation. And three, if you're worried about inflation, you're trending Republican. Other recent numbers show the larger environment continues to just be awful for Democrats, with 70 percent of voters considering the country on the wrong track and President Biden at 55 percent disapproval. Yeah, Jill. And historically, even without those numbers, the incumbent party, the White House, does not do well in their first midterm elections. Uh, You know, Clinton lost his majority in 94 uh, Obama lost his in 2010, Trump lost his in 2018. But then 
add to those historical trends these numbers. Uh, there is new evidence as, as you go deeper into this poll, Jill, that the Wall Street Journal put out that uh, economic and personal security, aka crime, has surpassed abortion as the top issue for white suburban women. They're the key constituency that has effectively swung elections now for several cycles. Right now, white suburban women in the poll favor Republicans by 15 points. Back in August, that same group backed Democrats by double digits. So there's been a huge swing here. Over 33% of white suburban women rated rising prices as the top issue motivating them. Only 16% named abortion rights as their top concern. Again, that was a much bigger issue coming out of the Roe v. Wade thing. Democrats bet on that big. Jill, also for our purposes, since we like to talk about this, tested the hypothetical matchup, the rematch between Biden and Trump. It found them tied at 46% uh, starting next week. That'll be all anyone seems to want to talk about. Uh, going deeper here on these polls, 538 Politics, 538 Politics, uh, for those who are interested, has done a really great job of breaking down the polls. Uh, they're split right now on whether what we're going to be seeing on Tuesday is a red wave or a red ripple. Uh, right now, polls show a ripple, meaning Republicans will do well, but not crazy mass numbers. Uh, in 2016 and 2020, I should note, polls underestimated Republicans. In 2018, they were accurate. The question they have is, have pollsters corrected for 2020? Uh, and so they basically run the numbers there. I'll include a link in the show notes uh, to all the various scenarios on if polls are accurate, if the margin of error goes either way, what we could see. But right now, there's a lot of concern among the Democrats in power that Tuesday might not end well for them. Yeah, I'm following some of the New York races closely on Long Island, where I live, two open congressional seats. They've been in Democratic hands for years, but the two Democrats that are currently the incumbents not running again. So Republicans feel pretty good. They're going to win at least one of those seats, possibly both. Hillary Clinton, uh, she's in New York stumping for Kathy Hochul, who's running for governor, of course. She's she's the current governor. Uh, there hasn't been a Republican governor in New York since George Pataki about 20 years ago. It just says a lot about the state of the race right now. Yeah, that these traditionally blue states uh, are seeing potentially uh, some Republican wins. Jill, you mentioned yesterday that uh, President Biden was headed to California and New Mexico uh, just ahead of the midterms. What's notable about that, and this is always what I try to tell people who follow politics, look at where the money is being spent and look at where the candidates are in the days and weeks leading up to an election. The fact that President Biden, a Democrat, is stumping for people in California and New Mexico, two very blue states, shows, and they're not going to say this, but it's clear that he's there for a reason, how concerned Democrats are about some you know, some potential losses in places that they have been able to take for granted for several cycles now. Uh, one positive thing I would say, Jill, by the way, as far as the White House is concerned, one way they're spinning it to themselves, if Republicans are able to take the House and or the Senate, uh, the White House will be able to say in 2024, going to the next cycle, uh, well, we now have shared responsibility, shared custody for the economy. So uh, the Republicans, now that if they were in charge of one of the bodies or both, will have to accomplish something in the next two years, as far as the White House is concerned, or they can then point the uh, finger back at Republicans in just two years. Speaking of the economy, this morning we're going to be getting some new numbers about the state of the job market in the United States. The Labor Department releases its jobs report for the month of October. So depending on when you're listening to the podcast, the numbers might already be out. The expectations are for about 200,000 jobs created last month. 
That would be down from 263,000 in September. It's still well above the average that we were seeing before the pandemic. The unemployment rate, that is expected to tick up slightly to 3.6% from 3.5%. Still, that would be the lowest it's been in about 50 years. Again, if you're listening to us after 8.30 a.m. Eastern, you could do a quick Google search for the latest jobs numbers or follow Moshe's uh, account on Instagram. Either way, we are expecting to continue this tale of two economies. On the one hand, we've got this really strong and resilient job market. On the other, Americans can't afford to pay for their groceries because inflation is out of control. The numbers today are important in helping shape the Fed's policy going forward when it comes to raising interest rates, a weaker than expected number, and the Fed could decide to slow down those rate hikes a bit, which Wall Street might like. Yeah, Jill, what's also notable about this report is that it's the last economic report card effectively before the midterm elections. So it gives you the best sense uh you know, and so both parties will be watching it very closely. But you speak to kind of the world we live in right now where up is down and down is up, Jill, because normally numbers like we got earlier this week from another survey showing more jobs are available, record low unemployment would be a good thing. But the world right now is upside down. So if we get a traditionally good number that shows that unemployment is low and there's lots of jobs available, well, that will mean that what the Fed has been up to trying to slow down the economy uh, slowdown spending has barely made a dent. So ironically, they're sort of rooting for unemployment to go up and the uh, jobs number uh, to be bad, because that'll mean that it's mission accomplished on these interest rate hikes. Uh, if the if the number's good, you're like, oh, there's like unemployment continues to be at a record low. That means like, oh, damn, we need to keep raising interest rates. And of course, we've all been watching as these interest rates have increased this year, uh, the impact it's had on the economy and particularly 30-year mortgages. And despite what's expected to be a relatively strong jobs number, we are seeing some big layoffs coming in the tech world. Those stocks, by the way, have been pummeled. So online payments giant Stripe laying off about 14% of its workforce. Lyft cutting 13% of its staff, the CEO saying, quote, we are not immune to the realities of inflation and a slowing economy. And they're not the first tech companies to make cuts or freeze hiring. Netflix, Spotify, Coinbase, Shopify, all had announced layoffs. Amazon, Google's parent company, Alphabet, Facebook owner Meta, they're trying to rein in spending, not to mention Twitter and what's expected to be a ton of layoffs there. Yeah, Jill, I, if anyone was uh, heavy into tech stocks or that kind of QQQ uh, ETF, you would know that uh, it's been a very rough year on your portfolio. Uh, and they have seen really an incredible decade. You know, one of the interesting things as we talk about these interest rate hikes is that for years now, interest rates have remained so low and it's allowed this sort of free borrowing, free for all. It's allowed these companies to grow their workforces uh, and really experiment with things because effectively, the cost of borrowing was zero, right, with these low interest rates. So you're seeing now these tech companies are among the first to really be seeing these layoffs and experience uh, the kind of downside of the economy because they were able to be so aggressive these past few years. Okay, here's your reminder to set your clocks back an hour on Saturday night or early Sunday morning. It is the much dreaded end of daylight savings time. And yes, for everyone keeping track, it is daylight saving time, not daylight savings time. Um, but there is still a push to make daylight saving time permanent. The Senate back in March approved the Sunshine Protection Act. It's a bipartisan bill that would make daylight saving time standard for all states except for Arizona and Hawaii. That did not pass in the House, however. 
One of the arguments for staying with a later sunset is that studies show that drivers would hit and kill about 37,000 fewer deer each year if the United States stuck to that daylight saving time year round. It would reduce the amount of time that rush hour traffic takes place during darkness. That in turn would prevent about 33 deaths and about 2,000 injuries among people and save about $1.2 billion in collision costs. But there's also an argument, of course, to leave things as is. It's always amazing, Jill, how they get to these numbers. I I don't know how they calculated 37,000 fewer deer. Uh, Someone, though, on Instagram accused me of doing propaganda for the deer because uh, (laughs) they're like, come on, Mosh, you should be on the team standard year round, not team daylight saving time. By the way, I kind of want it to be daylight savings time. Savings, plural, seems right to me. Yes, daylight saving does not roll off the tongue. It does not, which is probably why we all mispronounce it the other (laughs) way around. (laughs) Anyway, getting back to this debate, I have to remind folks that I know it's popular for many people to say, I would love daylight saving time all year round. You do get that later sunset all year. But many parts of the country, if we went to what we are right now, like let's say this weekend, we didn't fall back. Many parts of the country would not see sunrise till past 8 a.m., some after 9 a.m., depending on how far north you are, if we made daylight saving time permanent. And also a reminder, folks, we've tried this before. It was the 1970s. Richard Nixon actually signed a bill to make daylight saving permanent back in 73, 74. Well, while it was very popular right away, soon after, parents started to express concerns about traffic accidents, the safety of their children, walking to school in winter darkness. And so just over six months later, after we tried this experiment in August of 74, Watergate's happening. Everyone's like, the country's crumbling. Well, what also crumbled was support for permanent daylight saving time. It had been about 80% of Americans who approved the change back in December of 73. Approval dropped to 40% just a few months later, just after Nixon resigns, a Senate that some of you might be familiar with, Bob Dole, uh, back in the 70s, introduces an amendment to end daylight saving time. And then the new president, Ford, signed it in October of 74. So we've tried this experiment before and it lasted just under a year. And the other thing is, is that for people who live on the western side of the time zone, they're even in darkness later in the morning. So there are places, I, I saw you posted this on Instagram, but Michigan, Minnesota, for example, they don't, the sun doesn't rise there until almost nine o'clock in the morning. A, a thousand percent. That's why I have told people, I don't take many stances, Jill, but I have told people I am on team standard time. So I would like not to have to uh, change twice a year. So let's go team standard time, which is the time we're going on now, which, yes, does mean a slightly uh, earlier sunset, but it means that you don't have to wait till after 9 a.m. in some parts of the country uh, for sunrise. So I don't know. Let's let's do that. But right now we should note the Senate passed permanent daylight saving time again, sort of accidentally that it's stuck in the House right now. So let's hope that doesn't go forward and I'm going to start a movement for team standard time. You say that they did it accidentally. I feel like it's because it was called the Sunshine Protection Act that everyone's like, oh, I have to pass that. I can't vote against that. It does show you the power of uh, naming things, like the power of just giving something a certain name and how popular it becomes. Something people don't realize, natural gas is actually methane. But the industry years ago changed the name to natural gas to make people feel like, oh, that sounds really uh, healthy and really good for the environment. When in fact, you could argue at times that methane slash natural gas is worse than carbon dioxide emissions. Scientists will tell you that, but it does show you the power of a name. That's so interesting. Yeah. Nothing really natural about natural gas. 
No, nothing at all. <laughs> organic gas. I'm going to start organic gas. Clean. It's clean energy. Okay, time now for the speed read from Axios. Paul Pelosi was released from a San Francisco hospital on Thursday after recovering from surgery to repair a skull fracture and injuries to his hand and arm. Pelosi, who is 82 years old and married to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is home and resting just six days after that brutal attack. It came as we've learned that David DePepe, the man who attacked Pelosi, well, he was actually in the United States illegally and may face deportation. Yeah, get your head around this one. So according to federal records, DePepe is a Canadian citizen, but he entered the U.S. in 2008 from Mexico as a temporary visitor. So somehow made that loop around. Uh, he was in Mexico, <laughs> enters the U.S. at the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, we don't often talk about illegal uh, immigrants from Canada, but this is a case where you have that because Canadians do not require a visa to be allowed into the U.S. They're allowed to stay in the U.S. for six months. Uh, when he entered the U.S. back in 08, that now, if I do the math real quickly, he's been here for about 14 years, which effectively makes him illegally here. Uh, what that means, though, is he will typically, they'll go through the criminal proceedings. If they convict him, they would let him serve a prison sentence. Then after, the U.S. would typically then send that person, in this case, to Pepe, uh, back to their home country. So Canada can expect him at some point uh, after he serves prison time if he's convicted. This from the Wall Street Journal. Major companies are pausing their Twitter advertisements. Food company General Mills, Mondelez, which is the maker of Oreos, Pfizer and Audi, among a growing list of brands that have temporarily paused their Twitter advertising in the wake of the takeover of the company by Elon Musk. Some advertisers are concerned that Musk could scale back content moderation, which they say would lead to an increase in objectionable content on the platform. Others are temporarily halting their ads because of the uncertainty, as Musk considers changes. Most General Motors already announced that it paused its spending on the social media platform last week. Yeah, both GMs, General Mills and General Motors. I was not surprised to see, by the way, General Motors was the first mover there. They are no fan of Tesla, their major auto competitor, or Elon Musk. So they were the first one to say they're pausing uh, their advertising there right now. This is sort of, Jill, we've been talking about this, what we expected, you know, that ultimately Elon wants to create this completely free, open, free speech environment on a platform that's dependent on advertising. And many major companies do not want their ads to appear next to, you know, albeit it's free speech, but it could be hate speech, tweets of misogyny, anti-Semitism, racism, etc. What's also notable here, Jill, is that several ad buyers tell the Wall Street Journal to expect even more brands to announce that they're pausing their advertising on Twitter. The platform actually isn't considered a must-buy for many advertisers, given its relatively small size. Keep in mind, the Twitter user base, active user base, is either one-fifth or one-tenth the size of the uh, giants like Google, Facebook, Instagram that have billions of active users. Twitter is living in the 200 million to 300 million range. So many of them feel that this is uh, something they can do that won't really impact their bottom lines. You're not really active on Twitter anymore, are you? Honestly, you know, I've been there for a long time and I use it much more for news gathering and information gathering than actually putting out my own content. Okay, so I I used to be very active on Twitter and I pulled back a little bit for no real reason except that I just started to go on Instagram more maybe because we started working together so you know that's where most of the audience is. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, Elon Musk obviously bought Twitter. I wanted to re-engage a bit just because Elon Musk now talking about charging people who have the blue check marks, which we both do, either we're, $8. We're, we're blue checkers. Yeah. Yes, $8, $20. So I, I've recently I've just thought, all right, I'm going to go back on, see if I even like it again, you know, see, because I'm the same as you. I, I pretty much go on um, as to get news. I don't really contribute to the conversation. Anyway, I decided to kind of delve into a couple of conversations. It is so toxic. Okay. You cannot, there's no room oh no. for, for nuance. I mean, nothing crazy, but I, I was in one conversation, I was told to shut up. And then a bunch of people started liking that tweet. And in another, I was called a middle-aged white woman. None of this really bothered me so much. I have very thick skin from being in TV for as long as I have been. But it was more just like, who needs this in their life? You know, I I felt like I was... I felt like I was Tom Hanks from our conversation before I went on maternity leave where he said this, where he posted something like, I like those shoes or something and and got, you know, F you Tom Hanks back. It's like, it's, it's not that I was so offended by the comments. It was more just like, I don't need that energy. You know, I just like, ugh, I, I, that's, I don't know. I'm not into it. It's a lot of negativity. You're referring, by the way, back in June, Tom Hanks did an interview, I think, in the New York Times, where he was lamenting. I think he was asked in the interview about why he isn't more active on Twitter. And he's like, because I'm like, that's a pretty flower. And people are like, F you, Tom Hanks. (laughs) Dude, what's up? You know, it's so interesting, Jill, because like one of the reasons I went to Instagram initially two and a half years ago to begin my news feed is because that's how I felt about Twitter. It's just like a nasty place. Now, it's a very useful place, right? All the major journalists, CEOs, politicians are on there. It's where the conversation is happening. It's one of the reasons Elon has put together $44 billion to buy the platform. But there's a fundamental issue there, which is, and I talked about this a bit with Julia Borston in our, our interview this week and the podcast we put out on Wednesday, that like I kind of want to leave you know reality once in a while, which is like so nasty for social media where like ideally I will laugh or enjoy something. And Twitter kind of – you confront reality but worse. It's like a worse version of reality. <laughs> so I, he's, he has a really interesting challenge. Like again, I think he's had incredible success at Tesla, at SpaceX – uh, he's, you know, he's not a dumb guy. He's the richest man in the world. It's not by accident. So it'll be really interesting to see how he builds a business case for this, for advertisers to feel safe, for people to get there. You know, he wants to grow Twitter to a billion users from 200 million in just the next couple of years after it's plateaued for a long time. And then you mentioned the blue check thing. So notable verified people have blue checks. Uh, and he's basically like initially was like, I want to charge you 20 bucks a month to keep your blue check. And then Stephen King, of all people, the author, was like, yo, that's expensive. Somebody remarked, actually, Twitter is the only place you can watch a billionaire and someone worth $500 million have an argument over $20. And so then Elon responds <laughs> to Stephen King this week, how about $8? Like literally Stephen <laughs> King knocked the price down from 20 bucks a month to 8 bucks a month. I mean, Jill, after your experience, would you pay 100 bucks a year to keep your blue check? No, I don't think so. I- I, it turned me off so much. It's just, you can't have conversations. You can go in as a spectator, but yeah. it, you really cannot weigh in on anything without getting abused. It's it's just crazy. A big challenge ahead for Elon. We'll watch what to see what he does with it. This from NBC News. U.S. Embassy officials met with detained basketball star Brittany Griner in Russia Thursday. The State Department saying in a tweet that, of all places, that's the problem here, by the way, is that... 
every agency, every celebrity, everybody, every politician just puts out tweets now. This is where we learn the news. You know, yes, people ask exactly. me all the time, Jill, like, how do you follow everything? And I'm like, honestly, the secret is Twitter. If you follow the right people, you you know everything pretty much as it happens. Um, again, so, okay, the State Department saying in a tweet that U.S. embassy officials based in Moscow who visited Griner, quote, saw firsthand her tenacity and perseverance despite her present circumstances. The White House press secretary saying that Griner's doing as well as can be expected under the circumstances, adding that it is a top priority for the Biden administration to secure her release. Griner, again, a WNBA star, was arrested in February at a Moscow airport. Russian authorities claimed that she was in the country with vape canisters containing cannabis oil in her luggage. Yeah, they denied one of her um, uh, latest motions this week. She faces nine years in a penitentiary. Uh, but allegedly, the White House is working on this. They have former UN ambassador Bill Richardson working on this. They've offered two Russians for the two Americans being held there. And there were hopes as of the last couple of weeks that she could be home by Christmas. So it bears watching. Okay, let's stay abroad here for this next story. Uh, this comes to us from USA Today. Benjamin Netanyahu will form extreme right-wing government after Israeli election victory. The former prime minister is returned to power thanks to the rise of the uh, conservative right in Israel, a coalition of parties, including his party, as well as several others that have allied with him, have won the necessary amount of parliament seats in order to be able to build a government. That's according to the final results on Thursday. It's really been remarkable uh, to watch uh, over the past few decades as Israel, which actually started as a social demo socialist democracy over the years, has uh, there's been a rightward tilt in uh, the uh, voters there, uh, especially over the past 20 years, we could probably go on a whole separate podcast talking about that, Jill. The question right now for Netanyahu, who, by the way, is back for a third time as prime minister. He served for a couple years in the 90s, then had a 12 years in charge from 2009 to 21. He's now back for a third time. The big question is how much influence will some of these right-wing religious parties have in his coalition? He will have to govern by balancing all of them uh, and their needs. This is the challenge of parliamentary systems where you have multiple parties. You have to sort of feed each mouth and make sure they each have ministers in the government uh, and have various legislation that they like. One notable uh, thing, Jill, as I read the story, and we discussed this a bit on Wednesday, since this was the fifth election in just over three years, we were wondering like how many Israelis would actually turn out for this election. It turns out that nearly 72% of eligible voters cast their ballots, which was more than in any of the last four elections over the past three years uh, that produced stalemates, etc. By the way, to just compare that to the U.S., again, these are Israelis voting in their fifth election in three years, 72% of them. The highest ever turnout here in the U.S. was actually in 2020, and it was 66%. There's two ways to think about this. They're either so tired of elections that no one was going to come out or they're so tired of elections that they want a definitive answer and everybody was going to come out. And I guess it was the, the latter. I feel like in the U.S., if we had five elections in four years, turnout would be 10 percent. Well, and by the way, that. that number I mentioned, 66 percent turnout in the U.S. in 2020, it was a presidential election. Typically midterm, see just below 50 percent turnout. So I'm very curious this cycle, especially as early voting has become more common, mail-in voting is still a thing in a number of states, uh, what our turnout is this cycle. 
All right, switching gears, CNBC cancels Shepard Smith's show. That from the Wall Street Journal, the network saying the former Fox News host will be leaving CNBC after two years. NBC's canceled the news with Shepard Smith, an effort to focus more on business news coverage. The network planning to replace that 7 p.m. show with a business news program at the beginning of next year. Most, you were involved with this with this show, right? Yeah, I actually worked with Shepard back in my days at Fox News and then consulted on the launch of the show uh, just over two years ago. I guess that would be fall 2020. The goal at CNBC was to, after all you know, the CEOs and business types who like that sh- uh, network uh, and watch their coverage all day long, to have sort of a general news show straight down the middle, uh, no bias, uh, that was geared towards them. You know, Right now, if you watch CNBC in the evening, it's like Shark Tank reruns and those types of shows. And so they gave this a shot. And actually, I would DVR it. I think they did a very good job on that show. I I know some of the producers on it. uh, No Shepard took it very seriously. The issue I think they face is that in 2022, it is very hard to build a cable news audience. It is also very hard to build a cable news audience uh, at a time where the majority of the viewers are in their 60s or 70s. People are cutting the cord. And if you want to break out in cable primetime, primetime traditionally considered, you know, after 7 or 8 p.m., you got to have an opinion. you got to have partisanship. The best shows are the most opinionated shows in terms of ratings, right? Highest rated shows, Tucker Carlson, Rachel Maddow, Sean Hannity, uh, et cetera. And so that's the challenge CNN has faced is it's tried to kind of be down the middle, but then sort of mimic MSNBC at times. And CNBC is having here and also they're doing a general news show on a business network at night between Shark Tank and Jim Cramer. And so there were some larger uh, challenges that they were facing. But I wish everyone on that team well. There's a lot of good journalists uh, that worked on that show. Absolutely. All right, from the New York Times, Americans are faster than ever. So is the rest of the world. We're talking about this ahead of the New York City Marathon this weekend. American long-distance running has shown significant improvement and accomplished plenty in the past two decades. But at times, it could feel like the U.S. is back where it was 20 years ago when we struggled to qualify runners for the Olympic marathon. The idea of competing head-to-head with athletes from East Africa over 26.2 miles seemed preposterous for many American runners, even as they break new records themselves. They are watching athletes from around the world shatter those records as well. Among the reasons experts say that all these records are being broken is the shoe technology as well as better training. Uh, Jill, I know you've run the New York City Marathon a few times. What was that experience like? Moshe, I've run it three times and it's awesome. And it it feels like another lifetime ago, actually, for me, but it's one of the best days ever. I mean, it's 50,000, 60,000 runners from all across the country, all across the world, excuse me, come together. There's such camaraderie. Everybody lifts each other up. You've got fans 10, 12 deep, basically the whole course. You run through all five boroughs. It is, it's just pure joy from start to finish. Obviously, a little bit of pain towards the end, um, but it is just such a wonderful experience. I would I would love, love, love to run it again. I just don't know if my body's up for it. I was going to say, is that something you anticipate, trying to train and, and, and do it one more time? I don't know if I can. I would love to do it. It's just, first of all, the training is so time-consuming because you're you're gone for almost like three to four hours on, on once a week to do the long-distance running by the end of it. So I don't know if I have that time anymore. And I don't know, I really don't know if my body could, could tolerate it. If it could, I, I would. I think I'm going to try to just maybe do 10Ks and, and half marathons. 
Jill, if there's any incentive, I was reading in that uh, Time story, by the way, that Americans don't have to win to win effectively. Uh, by that, I mean the race actually awards the top finishing American, regardless of where they finish, $25,000. They say it's not a consolation prize, but a way to promote and support uh, American running. So if you're you know, in it for 25 grand, that well, that would also entail you running it again and being the top finishing woman. <laughs> well, that's not even remotely possible for me, but I think that's cool. And it's definitely a good way to promote, promote American running. And by the way, good luck. If there's anybody out there who's going to be running this weekend, good luck. And good luck to all of you who are in New York City trying to get through traffic on Sunday. It's a, it's a good way to. <laughs> there <laughs> the is locals that will too. tell you it's a it's a good day to avoid the city. Um, Jill, our weekly Friday segment, our favorite segment, what we're watching, reading, and eating this weekend. Uh, let's start with you. What are you watching? I'm going to be watching White Lotus season two on HBO. Unlike Netflix, they don't put out the entire season at once. So I believe by Sunday there will be two episodes. I find that frustrating. I mean, we all grew up that way. We grew up that way with the commercials and whatever. But like the whole eking out one episode a week, it's 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 frustrating. But, you know, something to overcome. Tell Me Lies is another show that's coming out one episode a week. And I have to say... I'm kind of into it. I, I don't, I, I was frustrated at first, but it's sort of like you forget about it. And then you're like, oh yes, I have something to watch. Okay, Mosh, what are you watching? So right now, honestly, Jill, I'm watching my Instagram feed because uh, we <laughs> talked about it on yesterday's podcast and we mentioned the top sheet question, like the Wall Street Journal piece that said, Americans uh, are trending away from top sheets as millennials and Gen Z says, you know, screw the top sheet. We're just comforter. It is blown up. I think I've gotten more than 2,000 messages as of Thursday evening from wow. people who are talking about sleep positions. Like, do they use two sheets as a couple, one sheet as a couple, different rooms as a couple? It's led to a whole thing. It has now led to people saying, we'd like this to be a weekly segment on your Instagram feed as a break from the news because the news is so depressing. Can you do these debates? And I was like, so what sort of debates do you want me to do? And then I've gotten a list of things, including uh like how do you put your socks on like do you do sock sock shoe shoe or sock shoe sock shoe which is a new thing for me people are talking about like do you wipe uh standing up or sitting on the toilet there's a whole there's so much honestly that's actually very interesting because bathroom habits people don't tend to talk about but and you just assume that everyone is like you anyway needless to say there's a lot coming and that's what i'm watching right now the- fascinating stuff. I couldn't believe I went onto Instagram and I saw that your stories had, you had like 75 things. I'm like, what is he posting? We're going to have a crazy podcast. And then I looked and it was all about this debate. I know that it breaks through when I get separate text messages about what's on your feed, which I did. I got a couple of text messages from people like loving the top sheet debate and then telling me what they do. And so uh, I know that certainly it's resonating with people. On that issue of the sock, sock, shoe, shoe, in case anyone's wondering what that is, it's basically this other viral debate, viral trend, wondering if you put on your socks, do you do your you know left sock right sock or vice versa and then put your shoes on or do you just do the whole do you do your sock and then shoe and then you go to the other one and do a sock and shoe i'm laughing because really is anybody doing is that really a debate is there anybody who's getting their whole one side all ready to go and then they have a bare foot on the other side I'm I'm inspired to put a poll up on that, but Jill, you put a poll up on that, and I noticed that it was 95% of people, <laughs> which is normal, put on their socks and then their shoes, and then 5%, I don't even know if these people are being honest, say they do one foot at a time, which I understand if you have a toddler 
or if you happen to be pregnant and you have like, you know, or limited mobility issues. But beyond that, there is no reason to be doing sock shoe, sock shoe. So somebody that I know, I, you could see in a poll who, <laughs> what people huh. did. So I, right. and there were so few people who said that they do the the sock shoe. So I looked and I have to, I don't want to out the person who said that they, one of the people who said that they do it, that the sock shoe, but um, I'm going to have to ask them what's going on and I'll report back on next week. And, and, and by the way, breaking news, Jill, I heard from one a sheet brand uh, that is interested in potentially partnering with us. So yes, <laughs> nice. so I will let you know. I will let you know if uh, somehow you know because people are so interested. Uh, there are some brands who want to get involved in this now. Okay, Mosh, what are we reading? And by we, I mean what are you reading? Because let's be honest, I'm not reading anything. I've got a newborn. I've got a toddler. I'm watching TV if I have any free time. So go on. <laughs> so, so I just finished "When Women Lead" by Julia Borston. Uh, she, we put out the podcast this week, uh, put out the newsletter, uh, about the conversation this week. I found the book fascinating. I've actually heard from a number of people in the Mo News community, uh, several women who said they're going to buy the book for their bosses, uh, just cause mm. it is so data driven and so interesting. Uh, what, uh, Julia, who happens to be a CNBC correspondent who wrote this book, uh, finds about what attributes traditionally female attributes uh, what they bring to business and how they really support the bottom line in the end. And I found it especially interesting that employees prefer women leaders during times of crisis, which, you know, we live in times that we live in uh, forever times of crisis these days. So anyway, I, I wanted to uh, do one more kind of shout out to her and that book. I'm not surprised by that at all, given that during the pandemic, countries that had female leaders performed a lot better and, and controlled the pandemic and the spread of COVID a lot better than other countries. So, uh, And it was a lot of those same attributes that Julia talks about in her book. Okay, what are we eating? Well, my week and a half of eating snacks and random things around the apartment is probably... Uh, thankfully, come to an end. Uh, my my wife Alex will be back uh, from her trip uh, abroad uh, at some point on Friday, and I look forward to meals again. Jill, do you do you when you're away from your spouse? Like, do your habits completely change? They do. I mean, before pre kids, yes. Now that there's kids in the picture, everything's just so regimented in terms of scheduling. But yes, um, when occasionally, if my husband would be away. Yes, it's it's like you you go back to your single life a little bit, right? In terms of just like you're messy, you eat whatever you I'm want. I'm leaving stuff everywhere. Yeah. Like I'm working at like 1 a.m. I'm like going to shower at 2 a.m. Like I have like, like I'm like, why am I watching uh, like a random NBA game? That's like not normally what I do on a Wednesday night. Like I'm just like, oh, let me turn on the TV. I'm like, let's see what's happening. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to eating. Uh, if Alex, if you're listening to this part of the podcast, eating healthy again. So it was a... It was fun picking out for a week. No, but especially in your marriage, because Alex is such a cook and, yeah. and that's that's such a big part of, of your relationship and stuff. So um, I am very excited to see what recipes and things she brings back from her trip to India. As for me, I'm basically just eating my leftover Halloween candy. I think I've had more um, Sour Patch Kids in the past week Ooh. than I probably ever had in my life. So it's a good excuse to eat candy. It is. In New York City buildings, uh, if those those who aren't familiar, trick or treating happens in the building, in the apartment building. So the uh, doorman, if you live in a doorman building, 
uh, typically have a lot of candy. So I've been just grabbing things on the way <laughs> in and out of the building repeatedly for the past few days because they haven't gotten rid of all the candy yet, Jill. So for those yes. folks out in New York City this weekend, there's still candy in a lot of these buildings. Yep. Best part of Halloween in New York City. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Mo News Podcast. You got to follow us, subscribe. That way you don't miss an episode. And a reminder to also review the show if you can. It helps us continue to grow the show uh, and move up in the uh, rankings uh, on all of the various uh, podcast apps you might be listening to us on. Also, a reminder, we have a brand new edition of the Mo Newsletter out today. If you don't already subscribe, you can head over to monews.bulletin.com to sign up for our newsletter. You can also follow me on Instagram you might be the only person left in the world who hasn't let me know if you use a top sheet <laughs> what side of the bed you sleep on and by the way the oversharing is a bit out of control right now jill i can't even post some of the messages i'm getting about what people do in the bedroom and how they feel about things and really uh weird things they say about their partners anyway needless to say you can follow me on instagram where you can get into that debate or whatever debates we end up having this weekend over at, at moshe at m-o-s-h-e-h and I'll see you on Monday, Jill. All right, everyone. Have a great weekend.